Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 84. Psalm 84. This is the second strophe, second verse that we're going to focus on this morning. As you know, I am trying to develop a theme through this series, and I hope you're getting it by now, that uh, I am responsible as a father, and my wife is responsible as a mother, to pass on to our children and to our grandchildren a legacy of the gospel so that in the years to come, our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren for generations to come will be called by his name and will love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm using the Psalms, which are the actual hymn book of the Old Testament, to build a principial foundation for how we can develop that legacy. We're going to take a look not at all of the Psalms, but at select Psalms, spend a couple of weeks on each of them so that we can not just look at the Psalm, but look at its ramifications. For now, we're looking at Psalm 84, which of course is one of the great, great Psalms of the Bible that speak of David when he was alienated and separated from the church. David was in hiding from Absalom, and as the result of that, found himself away from Jerusalem, away from the house of God, and he craved with all of his heart that God would bring him back into that kind of intimacy again. This is not to say that David did not worship God when he was alone. David certainly did, but there was something very special, some void in his life because he was not with God's people. He wanted to take full advantage of every opportunity to be with God's people while they worshiped so that he might uh, see the iron sharpening the iron so that his intimacy with his God would be increased as the result of that. All around you this morning, there are people who have come here with different needs. But we have all come with one purpose, I hope, and that is to develop a greater intimacy with our God, to engage him as he engages us. In other words, to walk out of here different people than when we came in. You know, the Bible tells us that if we will not praise him, even the rocks will cry out. Sharon and I spent the last uh, 10, 15 days or so uh, on a uh, little respite. We went to Myrtle Beach in South Carolina, kind of the Bible Belt, and uh, had a wonderful opportunity down there to go to a place that uh, put on a show, like Radio City Music Hall does and what have you. And uh, we figured it would be nice and clean. We were actually working ourselves up for like a hoot nanny. And because, uh, you know, you're in the South, you're going to hear all these, uh, these uh, banjos and everything else playing. But when we went to the Carolina Opry, it was different. It was the first night of their Christmas program. And as we were watching this program unfold, it included humor and 
secular songs, you heard the jingle bells, you heard the Santa Claus is coming to town, and all those other things that really do not speak of the message of the gospel, the message of Christmas. But uh, sprinkled throughout and threaded throughout the performance, about halfway through, I said to Sharon, I leaned over to her and I said, I wonder if these people realize how articulately they are presenting the gospel. Because the songs were powerful. Many of them were songs that uh, were taken from uh, black gospel. Uh, some were taken from southern gospel. Some were from traditional music. But they were all speaking and building upon the message. And I couldn't help but think that I wonder how many of those folks standing up on that stage, very skilled performers, by the way, uh, it was just an absolute brilliant performance, and it was the highlight of our trip. I wondered how many of them actually knew what they were doing, what they were saying. That here we are, we're standing there, and I, I said, I leaned over to Sharon, I said, you know, even the rocks will cry out. And 5,000 people or so were in that beautiful facility, and we were just mesmerized, I was, by what was taking place as the message of the gospel was becoming clearer and clearer. I began to realize that there had to be a Christian influence behind this program. Although it was not distinctively Christian, somebody knew what they were doing. When it came to the very end, the lady up on stage who started out by herself with one of the most talented voices I've ever heard. I mean, just absolutely brilliant. And we read in the program that she had uh, been featured on different Christian programs. And so I knew there had to be a Christian influence there. And that program ended with her singing, He's Alive. And I've never seen it or heard it sung that way. With all of the technology and all of the dancers and all of the lighting and all of the thunder and lightning and just an incredible, absolutely incredible performance of that great, great song. And about three quarters of the way through, a man stood up in the center of the audience and just raised his hands. And before you knew it, 5,000 people were up on their feet, feet doing the very same thing. It was just an incredible illustration of even the rocks will cry out. And I thought to myself, this is the church. Where God's people are, that's where the church is. It's not a building. David wasn't craving a building. He was craving being with God's people. And we knew we were with some of God's people. Certainly not all the performers were believers, but even they had to sing of our Redeemer's great love. And it was just a mesmerizing experience for us to see that the church is everywhere. So David wasn't longing for the building. In fact, the building to which David was desiring to go was what I would call a shack. The temple had not yet been built. Solomon in all of his glory had not yet built that wonderful temple. What David was craving was fellowship with God's people, intimacy with his God in a shack. He said, I would love to be one of those birds in the ceiling, one of those caged birds up there in the ceiling. He remembered as... He was worshiping there, now being alienated from the temple. He remembered seeing those birds, antiphonally singing and responding to the people who were worshiping God. There is no such thing as an isolated form of worship 
that will benefit you to the degree that worship with God's people does. We are to worship corporately. We are also to worship privately. And those two comprise for us the kind of spiritual growth that we need. Kind of troubles me on a Sunday morning, sometimes on a Wednesday night, when I come to the church just prior to Sunday school or just prior to the Wednesday evening program to see the line of cars leaving the church, parents who drop their children off, even though the Bible is being taught, even though women can gather with other women, men can gather with other men. On a Sunday morning, classes are being held. Sunday school teachers who take time to prepare God's word are doing just that. They thought it was more important to go out and buy a breakfast or go do some shopping and we become the grand babysitting service. Do you know what a message you're sending to your children when you do that? Do you know what kind of legacy you're building when that's just not important to you? I periodically keep in touch with a man who uh, had to leave this church years ago uh, because he moved to another part of the country. It was a very heart-rending decision for him. One of the great things that uh, he considered was his church and leaving his church family. Periodically, he'll give me a call or I'll give him a call. He's in, well up into his 70s. And every time I talk to him, he says the same thing. I can't believe how much time while I was there at Glasgow I wasted. I cannot believe how many times I sat out in the narthex or I roamed the halls or I left to go and get breakfast when the word of God was being taught and I didn't think it was important enough. He said, somehow or another, God got a hold of my heart. And if I could come back to that church and stand in the pulpit, I would tell you, please understand that God's word is pure and God's word needs to be learned and God's word needs to be experienced. He's now taking apologetics and polemics and studying biblical theology at the age of 79 or 80, whatever he is now. And he said, please tell the people to take advantage Please tell them to take advantage of every opportunity they have to study God's word. You know, when it comes to defining a church, a church is a body that comes together for several reasons. We come together to worship. That's similar to what we're doing right now. We come to worship God. We come to worship God with each other with different needs. We come to hear the word of God preached. We come to experience the sacraments. We come to celebrate even discipline where we learn to discipline one another and educate and teach one another. But at the core of what we do, at the core of the, the worship of the body is the preaching of God's word. Preaching is so fundamental to what we do as believers. That's what the prophets were for in the Old Testament. That's what the apostles were doing in the New Testament. The preaching of God's word, the logos, the preaching of the word of God. The preaching of the word is going to disturb but the preaching of the word is also going to give us hope. There is no greater illustration of this than Psalm 84. We dealt with the first verse. These verses, by the way, in Psalm 84 are set into chapters or verses, if you will, strophes of a hymn. And they're separated by the word selah, which simply means stand back a moment, rest, take this in, absorb this. And then he goes on to the second verse. He says in the first verse, 
How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord, o Lord God Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home. Look at verse two again. He uses three words to describe how he's going to worship. He's going to worship with his soul. He's going to worship with his heart. He's going to worship with his flesh. Mind and soul and body are all given to God. And his alienation from the temple, his separation from God, this lack of intimacy that he desired, caused his body to hurt. It caused his mind to hurt. His heart and his flesh cried out to God that he would have that intimacy again. He posits even the possibility that he would be a bird in the ceiling than to be where he was. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. You'll notice he calls him Lord Almighty, the holy other God, the fully transcendent God, the one who cannot be touched because he is God, the Lord God Almighty, the holy other God. But then he speaks of him as my Lord, my God. He says, O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. This holy other transcendent God is also an imminent God, a God who can be touched a God who can be experienced, a God who even though he is creator of the universe and creator of us is the same God that condescends to be a man, who condescends to our level so that he might experience what you and I experience and die in order that we might have life. He says in verse four, blessed are those who dwell in your house for they are ever praising you. Well, now the man is alienated. We're ready for the second verse of the hymn. If you look at the second verse of the hymn, you see the essence of the principle. The principle is that we must teach our children love for the church, love for worship, but we must love the church and worship God his way and not our way. We must approach him the way he directs and not the way we think we should. He says in verse five, he says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. I love that verse because you see every single one of us in one form or another are on a pilgrimage. We're on a journey. We're on a spiritual birth line. For some of you, you have not yet been converted. But God has all along been speaking to your heart. He's been birthing ideas in you. He's been revealing himself piece by piece so that you will understand it is by faith that we come to Christ. And some of you are along that spiritual birth line. You've heard the gospel. You've heard the word of God, but you have not yet been converted. You're on a journey. You're on a pilgrimage. Some of us as believers, all of us as believers, in one shape, way, shape, or form, are on a spiritual journey. All of us are on a pilgrimage. He says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. What he means by that is blessed are those who are over here alienated from you and see where they need to be and who are making the journey to get there. 
Blessed are those who do not have that intimacy with you, where there is something blocking that intimacy, who are here and long to be here, and they're on that journey to get there. For some of us, that intimacy is blocked by sin. Sin that goes unconfessed. We stand here even today and we say, why am I not getting any of my prayers answered? Why is there no spiritual power in my witness? Why do I feel spiritually as though I'm lagging behind everybody else? Why do I have no boldness? Why when I read the scriptures is it dry and void? Why when I come to church and listen to the word, my mind begins to wander to other things? Why does this happen? Because God is calling you to repentance. He's saying, don't bother putting on the show as long as there's unconfessed sin in your life. Confess the sin, and I will be faithful and just to forgive. Repent of the sin, and I will be faithful and just to forgive. But you can never have that intimacy with me. You can never have the dynamic of intimacy in the worship of your God as long as there is unconfessed sin. The word confess means to agree with God. God simply wants you to agree that you have sinned and then to repent of that sin so that you might have full confession before him and full repentance and restoration. For some of you, it's a broken relationship. The Bible tells us clearly, men, that your prayer life can be hindered in the way in which you treat your wife. If you do not treat her as that fine china that Peter speaks of, your prayer life can be hindered. God says to you, you know what? Drop your worship off. Leave it here. I'll be here when you return. Go home and be reconciled to your wife. Go home and be reconciled to your husband. Go home and be reconciled to your, to your parents or to your children. Go home and make it right to the best of your ability. Go home and confess. Go home and submit. Go home and heal. Some of you may have a conflict with somebody else, somebody you work with, a next door neighbor, whatever. And you say, well, I don't have any plans on trying to reconcile this because I'm right and they're wrong. Just that simple. God says, you know what, leave it here. Leave your worship right here. Go and be reconciled and then come back. I'll be here when you get back. Go and reconcile and come back. So it could be unconfessed sin. It could be something going wrong in your home. It could be something going wrong in conflict resolution. There's a whole list of things that can block our worship of God. He says reconcile, confess, get on the road, get on the pilgrimage, get on the journey so that you might have greater intimacy with me. And he says, in that pilgrimage, I will give you strength. I'll give you strength to believe. I'll give you the strength to obey. I'll even give you the strength to suffer. I'll give you the strength to change. Because all along this pilgrimage, this journey is the goal. The goal is to be in the house of the Lord. The goal is to be in great intimacy and in a great relationship with the God you love and the God who loves you. Although the present may be dark, there is light, David says, in the dwelling place of God. 
Now you need to understand that the roads leading from Jerusalem where the people gathered on festive days, on special occasions, on the feast days, to worship those roads that went out from Jerusalem to various parts of the territory, those roads were well-maintained. And they were well-traveled. But people didn't have cars in those days. Their means of transportation was a horse or a donkey or their feet. And they would travel many, many miles from one location to Jerusalem so that they could be where God's people were so that they could gather in the house of God, so that they could be there in that kind of intimate relationship. You know, no matter how far the child of God has drifted, he has not drifted so far that God does not build a highway and say, here is the way back. Here is the journey you're on. Here's the pilgrimage. No matter how far we've drifted from his presence, when we lift up our eyes, we can see a highway and we can see where that highway leads we can see that we can be in that kind of intimate relationship with God again. Why? Because his heart is set on the pilgrimage. Nothing's going to stop him. David's going to get there. He's alienated, and he's going to be reunited. But he knows to get to that place, to go from point to point, he has to travel some difficult roads. So he says, my heart is set on pilgrimage He'll get ready for the trip. He'll make whatever plans are necessary. He will sacrifice whatever he needs to sacrifice, whatever personal pleasures he needs to give up. He is going to keep his heart and his mind and his flesh fixed on the goal. The goal is intimacy with his God. That's why it's so critical for us to take advantage as we prepare for the pilgrimage of every opportunity God gives us. I like to call it spiritually loading up. We need to learn to load up. You know what I mean by that? There are times, I don't know about you, but I can speak for myself, and I think it's probably true of all of us. There are times when I read that book that I get absolutely nothing out of it. It seems dry as toast. There are passages that I read and I say, what do these have to do with me? There are passages that I look at when I'm working through a book of the Bible and I'm trying to teach you a book of the Bible. I say, oh, you know, maybe I should skip that. And I don't. I keep coming back to it again and again and again. You want to know why? Because I'm loading up. I'm loading up with the resources that I'm going to need. Somewhere down the road, I'm going to need that passage. Somewhere down the road, even though it's dry now, I'm going to need it. And maybe I'm not going to need it, but my children will need it. Maybe somewhere down the road, I'll teach them one of those dry stories from the scriptures that will become something that explodes for them years from now. I'm loading up. I'm getting ready for the pilgrimage. I'm getting ready for the journey. We load up in worship. We load up by listening to the word. We load up by the study of God's word. We load up by iron sharpening iron. We load up. Because down the road, we're going to need it. That's what it means to have your heart set on pilgrimage. And we go from strength to strength. Look at verse 6. It says, as they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. You know, when I read something like that, that's one of those passages that I look at and I say, 
what does this mean? What's this have to do with me? What's this valley of Baca he's talking about? And you'll read a commentator here or a commentator there, and they'll have something to add to your, your, your question about what that means. But go a little deeper. Go behind the scenes. You'll find, for example, the valley of Baca is spoken of in Judges chapter 2. When you go back to Judges chapter 2, it says, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal, listen, to Bochim, and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give you to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim. They offered their sacrifices to the Lord. You see, Bochim and what he says in Psalm 84 about the valley of Bacar, one in the same place. Bochim is the valley of Bacah. And he tells us there, that word, uh, by the way, for Bacah simply means tears. The valley of tears. It's a place of sorrow. You see, friends, that's where our journey has to begin. Our journey has to begin with sorrow. This is what James meant when he said, let your laughter be turned into sorrow. He said, let your laughter be turned into into sorrow. You say, well, what do you mean? What are we supposed to be sorry over? We're supposed to be sorry over our sins. We're supposed to be sorry over the fact that we're alienated from God. We're to be sorry that we have drifted so far. We're to be sorry that God is here and we're here. There's a godly sorrow that we are to have. But the way in which we travel through to get to that intimacy is through the valley of tears the valley of Bacaw. If you look at verse 7, it says, they may go, or they go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Strength to strength literally means company to company. Well, what does that mean? Well, now we know the valley of Bacaw is the valley that they must travel through to get, David needs to travel through that valley to get from here where he craves intimacy with God, to Jerusalem, where he has intimacy with God. So he has to travel through that valley of Bacaw. Well, many people did. It was the place of tears, the place of sorrow. Why? Because it was a difficult road to travel. It was a painful, difficult road to travel. Along the way, during the feast days especially, that valley of Bacaw became a desert. There was no water. Nothing to drink. So you can only load up so much water. As you're making this long journey, your water would run out. But here's what would happen in the valley of Bacaw. When a man starts his journey to go to Jerusalem, he's depending on something. What he's depending on is that somebody else has traveled that road before him. And what they would do is they would start out on the journey and they would dig ditches. 
Because during those seasons, sudden storms would come, five, ten-minute downpours. And those downpours would produce water that would then be collected in those ditches. And then they would move ahead, fill their tanks, so to speak, move ahead until they ran out and they would come to another ditch. Somebody before them has carved out. And that ditch would be filled with water. And then they would move a little bit further and further and further. And these pilgrims would be doing two things, making the journey, but making the journey behind others who have already made the journey. That's what it means when it says they go from strength to strength. They go from pool to pool, from ditch to ditch, because they're making a pilgrimage. They're making a journey. Here's the point. Whenever you're alienated from God, and the joy you seek will require you to walk through a great pilgrimage of sorrow. You will not have to walk that journey alone. Others have already walked that walk. They've already gone before you. Can you see legacy here? Can you see how critical it is for you as parents and grandparents to walk that pilgrimage Sometimes we don't know why we're going through certain things. But one thing is for sure, everything in your life as a believer has been filtered through the sovereign hand of a God who cares for you. Even if it's pain and heartache and sorrow. Even if your pain and alienation is the result of somebody else's bad behavior in your life. It is still filtered through the hands of a sovereign God. So they go from strength to strength, but they're traveling this road through the valley of sorrow. He says in verse 8, Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. There it is again. Hear my prayer, holy other Lord God Almighty, transcendent God who cannot be touched. Yet you are the God of Jacob, the worm the hoax, the liar, the imposter Jacob, you, that holy other God Almighty, can condescend to be the God of Jacob, and thus my God. So when I walk through that valley of tears, when I walk toward my God in order to have that greater intimacy with him, I walk a pathway that others have walked, but yet I walk it through the hands of a sovereign God who has filtered it along my way. That's why I like to say nothing happens to you by chance or fate or mistake because, you see, God's promise is that we never make a journey alone. He will not allow us to fall beyond where he, by his grace, can reclaim us because his goal is our utter perfection. But we must walk that walk sometimes. We do so with hope. Because Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. You ever been there? I have. You know the hope is there, but you're not experiencing it right now. It's been deferred. You can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You can't even see the tunnel. But you know it's there. And you know the light's there. And you know the goal is there. But we're living in darkness, and we lose hope. Hope seems to be deferred, and what happens? It makes you sick. 
It makes the heart sick. You know what a sick body is, don't you? You've all been sick at one time. Some of us have been able to experience a sick mind. But what's a sick soul? What does a sick soul look like? Sick soul is surrounded by darkness. There is no hope. There is no joy. And what does he tell us to do? Get on the road. Get on the road. Isn't that what Philippians tells us Jesus did? Doesn't Philippians tell us that Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and became a man and took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Now you got to understand, before we go any further in that first century hymn in Philippians 2, you need to understand that that obedience required that Jesus would get along on a journey that he would travel a pilgrimage. That pilgrimage began when he was baptized. I need to understand something. Jesus' baptism was not, as we would call it, baptism or believer's baptism or children's baptism. His baptism was different. His baptism was an anointing into his public ministry. He wasn't showing us how to be baptized in order to be an example. He wasn't repenting of any sin in his life. He wasn't taking some sort of public posture of confession of sin. That's not what he was doing at all. What Jesus was doing was entering his public ministry. The law required that that would be when a man was 30 years of age and he would be anointed by a priest. John was the priest. Jesus was anointed by the priest. He is now entering his priesthood. But what happens there? At the beginning of his pilgrimage, what happens there? He knew for what reason he came, didn't he? He would repeatedly tell his disciples, my hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. But the hour is coming when you will see the Son of Man betrayed into the hands of sinful men. I'm on a journey. I'm on a pilgrimage. And at his baptism, you see the threefold aspect of the Trinity. Jesus, the high priest, who would mediate our sins, who would stand in the gap between me and my God, who would open the gates of heaven for me by faith to trust in what he would do on the cross, the great high priest, he would become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He would become the sacrificial lamb. He would have to travel that road to the cross. He would have to go through that valley of sorrow. And in his case, nobody had ever gone before him. He would travel that alone. The Holy Spirit would come in the form of a dove at his baptism. And the voice of God the Father would be heard from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, prophet, priest, king. The beauty of all this is we're created in God's image. And Jesus is our brother. We are to become more and more conformed to him. 
We are to become like him. So you and I, in one sense of the word, are prophets in that we declare the wonderful praises of that good news message. We are priests in that we now need no mediator. We can stand and worship God with all the barriers taken down. We can pray for others. We can intercede. We can declare the goodness of Christ. We are kings. You see, Christ is our brother. That makes you a prince. That makes you a princess. We worship as prophets and priests and kings. But now, as Peter tells us, we must also walk in his steps. That means we must be on that pilgrimage. We must get on that road, get on that journey to greater and greater intimacy with Christ. Back to that Philippians hymn. He took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. There was no greater alienation that anybody has ever experienced than the alienation that took place from 9 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon on that first Friday that men call good. Because the Son of God, who bears my sins and bears your sins and bears my sorrows and bears your sorrows, who was tempted in every point like unto us, was nailed to a cross. What did you expect that his God would do? While the mockers stood by and said, come down from the cross. You say your God will protect you, the angels will protect you. Come on down from the cross. Where are the angels now? Where is God now? And they mocked him. But you know, in one sense of the word, they were right in their mocking. Because you know what his God did? He turned his back on his only begotten son amidst his screams and allowed him to die on that cross alone. That's what Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani means. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, a term of estrangement. Because you see, God the Father, rather than saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, God the Father turns his back on God the Son, and that darkness that came from 12 to 3 was because God had withdrawn his light. Why? Because Christ was entering a journey, a pilgrimage. That's why Paul would say in Philippians, wherefore, God has highly exalted him. Wherefore means what? In light of his death in light of his obedience to death, in light of his willingness to travel that journey, to travel that pilgrimage, wherefore God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of things in heaven, earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what that's called? intimacy with his father. You imagine what happened at three o'clock when the Bible tells us that he released his spirit into your hands I commend my spirit. You imagine what that reunion must have been like 
when Jesus appeared before his father after having served, the sentence of death for you and for me. Alienation. Traveling the road of sorrow, exaltation, and intimacy. We go from strength to strength to strength to strength. Because others have walked that path. Others have gone before us. Others have dug the ditches. And you send that same message to your children. That same hope as they watch you suffer. As they watch you when you are alienated from your God and you make that journey back. They watch you when you repent and humble yourself. You know the problem is, and I'll close with this, you know what hinders the journey the most? You know what causes us to stop along the way and we can't see anymore? We can't see God anymore? This is what causes it when we do this. It's everybody else's fault. Look what you did to me. It's your fault I'm alienated from God. It's your fault I'm alienated from God. It's your fault I'm suffering right now. It's your fault that I have no hope. It's your fault that I'm going through what I'm going through. It's your fault. And as long as you're doing this, as long as you're doing this, pointing the finger at everybody else, you cannot do this and say, I yield. You can't do it. You're too busy doing this. Where are you this morning? Where on that pilgrimage are you? Are you digging a ditch? Are you watching it fill with water? Are you crawling up to the next ditch? Can you see light? Can you see the end of the tunnel? Can you see that intimacy? So he closes the second stanza. When he says in verse 8, Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Here is a man, body, mind, and soul crying out to his God. And that is how you get intimacy. It won't happen any other way. The sorrow is a necessary pathway to experience that light. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust Him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.